All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see you. If you uh, we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at uh, LifePoint. I uh, guess it's good to have you uh, with us this morning and LifePoint family. Just, it's wonderful to see you, uh, to be with you week in and week out. I was, <clears throat> as we were singing there at the end, I was reflecting on the fact we live in a culture that is near obsessed with everything new, right? Times change, technology changes at such a rapid rate, and yet uh, for the last 2,000 years, if you've ever thought about this, the last 2,000 years, we as the people of God have been gathering in this way on the Lord's Day, on the day that Christ was resurrected and singing like we just did, uh, singing the praises of God. And I think that's such a grounding reality. For 2,000 years, the people of God have been doing this, gathering, sitting under the Word of God and singing to Him. And so it's a privilege to do that with you. And guests, we welcome you into that this morning. We're grateful uh, that you're here. Uh, Today, a couple of things before we start. One, it is 9-11. And so I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that, uh, to say it's a a bit of a somber day for our nation as we remember nearly 3,000 people who lost their lives uh, a little over two decades ago. And I think it's a good opportunity to take a moment just to say to our Uh, police officers and firefighters and all of our first responders. We are grateful for you. Thank you for the way you serve us. Um, Next thing, so we've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks, that Life Group launch uh, is today. So if you're new to LifePoint, let me just explain sort of how we do things here. We gather on a Sunday morning in our large group context, and then we gather during the week. On almost every evening of the week at this point in time, we have groups going. So we gather during the week uh, in smaller group contexts. And we really believe uh, that's a big part of where relational connectivity comes in. When we gather at this size, there's a limit to the amount you're going to get to know someone, seeing them on a Sunday morning, serving next to them, being on a life team. That is super helpful, we believe, in multiple ways. But it's really in the context of life group, being in someone's home, being in a smaller group, group of eight to 20 folks that you get to know someone at a deeper level, connect relationally, and take next steps spiritually. So if you haven't jumped yet into a life group, um, we, we typically historically as a church have had about 90% of our Sunday morning attendance in a life group. And so uh, that's the norm for us. We believe in life groups. That's hugely important to us. So if you're here and you're like, I'm not yet in a life group, we want to help you get into a group this term. So we've got tons of family groups, men's groups, women's groups. There's middle school and high school groups, 18 to 25 groups. There's also a few bridge groups that I want to highlight this term. Bridge groups are groups that often meet for a shorter period of time. And the idea is you would come out of a life group for one term into this bridge group. It's a little bit more content specific and then hopefully Hopefully go back into a life group after that. But three groups I'll just highlight. Uh, one is called Experiencing God, walking through that workbook. And so if you've ever had just questions around, man, how does God speak to us? And what does that look like? The confluence of the word and circumstances and prayer and relationships. Uh, there's a group uh, that's going through that content together. I've been through it before. It was hugely helpful. Uh, there's a group simply on how to read the Bible. Uh, which I, we have found that to be a need in the life of the church. Uh, so many of us, even though we've been maybe in church for a long time, when we ask the question, yeah, but do you feel comfortable sitting down and reading the word on your own? The answer oftentimes is no. I tried and 
there were too many these and thous, and I gave up. And so we want to help you uh, learn how do you read the Bible on your own. So it's sort of Bible reading 101. And there's also then, a thirdly, a grief share group going on. We've had a number of folks just walking through a season uh, of grief in these last few months or this last year. And so there is a grief share group as well. There are some bistro tables out in the lobby. Uh, all of these groups are listed in the catalog. You can reach out directly to leaders. If you don't have a catalog, those are at Guest Central. But there are also some bistro tables out there. And um, there are some lists there. If you just say, hey, I just need to get into a group, that's a great next step is let them know at the bistro table. They'll take your name and info. We'll help you get connected to a group. But in light of that, I'm going to do something here. And life group leaders, you're probably going to be a little mad at me for this, but uh, just bear with me, right? So if you're a life group leader or a life group spouse or a bridge group leader or a co-leader spouse, will you just stand for a moment? Uh, We just want to say thank you to you. And also look around. These are the people you can connect with if you don't have a group. Stand up. Yep. Thank you. So leaders, thank you for how you lead. And folks, if you don't have a life group, look around, find one of them, and they can say, hey, I hate that guy on stage, but I want to get you into a group, right? So leaders, we appreciate you and love you. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off a series that we're calling Asking for a Friend, and we are uh, really sort of asking or trying to voice out loud those questions that we feel like many people are asking, many people within the church are asking, that maybe you don't want to say it out loud, so we're just sort of voicing it for you. And we said last week that we didn't We didn't ask these questions simply by sort of putting our finger up and trying to gauge the cultural wind as much as we looked at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 and said, man, many of the questions that we're wrestling with in our culture, in our time, in the church today are things that the early church was dealing with. The early church wasn't just a picture of health and everything was going great. They were dealing with many of the issues we deal with today. And so week one, we looked at conflict within the church. Uh, Last week, we looked at this question, why are Christians so backwards or judgmental? When it comes to sex, and we said, ultimately, our goal is really not to be backwards or forwards, uh, cutting edge or conservative. The goal is to be faithful to the Word of God and to submit ourselves to His Word. And so we looked at, really, last week's sex outside of marriage and sexual immorality, and it was, it was tough and it was heavy. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back uh, online. You can find that message and listen to that and give that a full listen through from last week. Um, this week is not so much going to be sex outside of marriage as much as sex inside of marriage. Uh, and the reason that we're doing that is because that's what Paul talks about next in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he talks about, right, so this is the biblical design or boundary for sex. And the question today then is, well, if that's the biblical design for sex and sexuality is one man and one woman inside of the covenant of marriage, why, if it's inside of the covenant of marriage, if we're married, are we still having so many problems? Why is this still a struggle if that's the biblical design and we're doing that? By the way, I'll say this, single folks, right? Uh, You've endured many marriage sermons, right? And so I want you to let you know, as we go through 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, next week is on singleness, right? And we're talking through how, why does God ordain a season, right, of singleness or to some singleness and happiness and joy within that for the sake of the mission of God. So single folks, next week we're hitting singleness uh, for, for you as we go through 1 Corinthians 7. But this morning we're sort of looking at this question of, okay, if sex within marriage is biblical, then why isn't it just easy? Why isn't it just happily ever after? Because that's what Disney told us, right? So, do you notice all those movies end right there, right? They get to the, you know, every romantic comedy and it, like, they get to there and happily ever after, but then you, you don't see what happens after, right? You don't see the next 
year, decade, 50 years of working that out and the hard work of marriage. The movie just, uh, funny enough, sort of ends right there. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray for us. Uh, I wanna let you know as well, as we talk through this, if the Lord stirs in you and you're like, man, I just need to go talk to someone, even now, there will be people in the lobby. Our Next Steps team and staff members will be in the lobby. If at any point in time you need to get up and go talk with someone, you are more than welcome to do that. Uh, as I said last week, if, any, if you have kids with you, you don't have to take them to LifePoint Kids. Uh, nothing we say this morning is going to be outside of what the church has always taught about this, but there'll be some things that are maybe sensitive within it. So you're welcome, as I pray, uh, to take your kiddos to LifePoint Kids if you see fit. But let's pray together, and we'll get into 1 Corinthians 7. Father, we ask for grace and wisdom. Once again, we submit ourselves to your word. And specifically, Lord, as we talk about sex within marriage, uh, I recognize, Father, that uh, there is hurt and pain in this area. For some, it's a, a place of health and joy, and we celebrate that. And for some, Father, it has been a place of frustration and anger and difficulty. And so, uh, Lord, we hurt alongside our brothers and sisters, and we ask you, our Father, to come in and to meet us right where we are. We need your grace, and we ask for your help by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about this question, so why are we still having problems? If that's the biblical design, and hey, I'm married, why isn't this just easy? Here's the short answer to that question. If the Bible stopped at Genesis 2, there would be no difficulty here. All right? The problem is that Genesis 3 happened. If you've read through this Genesis, so a couple of weeks ago, I started going through Genesis again, just in my personal time, and, and I'll come back to this at the end, but you get into Genesis 2, and you see, and it's just beautiful. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world and God creates mankind. And he creates Adam and Eve and they complement one another. She's created from his side and he brings her to him and, and the two become one flesh and Adam sings a song or writes a poem basically. And it's just this incredible, complimentary, pure delight kind of relationship. And then Genesis 3. Genesis 3 happens and they turn away from the Lord and sin and the distorting and destructive effect of sin comes into the marriage relationship itself. And so we have problem and struggle and shame and embarrassment, right? Genesis 2, it says they're naked and unashamed. But Genesis 3, they're hiding from each other and from God because suddenly they realize they're naked and they know their sin and their shame and embarrassment and struggle and tension introduced into the world and into the marriage relationship. Now, praise God, he sends Jesus to rescue us to heal us, to cover our shame and brokenness, to pay for our sin, to bring us into relationship with one another. But we still feel the effects of sin and selfishness and brokenness. And that's the short answer as to, well, why is there such difficulty? And so I think we just start there by saying, hey, if you experience difficulty, even within marriage, that's normal. And some of the things we're going to say, hey, some of it may not be healthy, but if you're like, I thought this was supposed to be easier, I thought this was just supposed to be happily ever after, I don't think the Bible, it has been a place of frustration and anger and difficulty. And so, uh, Lord, we hurt alongside our brothers and sisters, and we ask you, our Father, to come in and to meet us right where we are. We need your grace, and we ask for your help by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we think about this question, so why are we still having problems if that's the biblical design, and hey, I'm married, why isn't this just easy? Here's the short answer to that question. If the Bible stopped at Genesis 2, there would be no difficulty here. 
All right, the problem is that Genesis 3 happened. If you've read through this Genesis, so a couple of weeks ago, I started going through Genesis again, just in my personal time, and, and I'll come back to this at the end, but you get into Genesis 2 and you see, and it's just beautiful. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world and God creates mankind. He creates Adam and Eve and they complement one another. She's created from his side and he brings her to him and, and the two become one flesh and Adam sings a song, or writes a poem basically. And it's just this incredible, complimentary, pure delight kind of relationship. And then Genesis 3. Genesis 3 happens and they turn away from the Lord and sin and the distorting and destructive effect of sin comes into the marriage relationship itself. And so we have problem and struggle and shame and embarrassment, right? Genesis 2, it says they're naked and unashamed. But Genesis 3, they're hiding from each other and from God because suddenly they realize they're naked and they know their sin and their shame and embarrassment and struggle and tension introduced into the world and into the marriage relationship. Now, praise God, he sends Jesus to rescue us to heal us, to cover our shame and brokenness, to pay for our sin, to bring us into relationship with one another, but we still feel the effects of sin and selfishness and brokenness. And that's the short answer as to, well, why is there such difficulty? And so I think we just start there by saying, hey, if you experience difficulty, even within marriage, that's normal. And some of the things we're going to say, hey, some of it may not be healthy, but if you're like, I thought this was supposed to be easier, I thought this was just supposed to be happily ever after, I don't think the Bible really portrays it that way. We experience the difficulty of sin and brokenness, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit and the cleansing of Christ to help us. So with that as the background, look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote... And so this happens several times in the next few chapters. The Apostle Paul is specifically, we're not guessing, like he is specifically saying, like you wrote to me about this, let me address that question. So it's like Q&A time with the Apostle Paul. And he goes on, he says something they wrote to him, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So here's what's so interesting. Last week, we said, man, sexual promiscuity is all over their city, sexual immorality all over the city. It's bled its way into the church. Paul's having to address that. He's like, man, you guys are having sex outside of marriage in all these different ways. He had to address it in verse, or chapter five and then in six. And then we get to seven and, and, and you've got some people going, well, maybe we just shouldn't have sex at all. And you're like, wait a second, what? I thought the problem was sexual promiscuity, not abstinence. And so this is where we get to the reality of what's going on in this church. It's a divided church. We saw that actually in chapter one. The way that letter starts is he's like, man, some of you guys are like, I follow Paul. Others of you are like, I follow Peter. Others of you are like, I follow Apollos. And others of you are like, well, I follow Jesus. And so they're kind of arguing with each other about who's the right leader. And they're divided in their opinions. They're not united in the path forward. And so you've got some of them who are practicing sexual immorality. And then some of them are like, well, if sexual immorality is the problem, maybe we lean this way and we just say, No sex at all. And I I want to point this out. This is a classic solution that the church has reached for throughout the centuries. That Christians, right? What I'm going to call the two ditches. This has been helpful for me in thinking about this. The two ditches, right? Of license and legalism. The two ditches of license and legalism. License, we talked about last week, right? That grace means you can do whatever you want. So there's one temptation to say, hey, let's land in this ditch of you can do whatever you want. You have Sex with anyone. God doesn't care what you do with your body. 
But the temptation then is to say, okay, well, that's wrong. So let's take the wheel, turn hard, drive across the road of wisdom, and then land in the other ditch of legalism, right? So how about we just ban all of it? We'll just stay away from it entirely. And we've seen this, have we not? Especially if you grew up maybe in, a, in, a, in the church and some of us, I've talked to you, like I had a very legalistic background. I was like, hey, the movies, right? Nope, those are the devil. We never go to the movie theater, right? Ban it all. Dancing, right? Well, dancing can lead to other stuff. So ban it all, right? No dancing, no movies, no. And so, and usually it starts off with good intentions. Hey, we wanna stay away from this thing that's dangerous or bad or sinful or hurtful. But what happens is, instead of driving on the road of wisdom and saying, Lord, we need help, we end up in the other ditch, right, of legalism, and, and both are wrong. And that's what's happening here, is that there's a temptation to say, well, since sexual promiscuity is so prominent, why don't we just drive over here and we'll say, let's just stay away from all of it. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that's not the way to handle that. He says, marriage is a good thing, and sex within marriage is and can be a good thing. And so the right road is wisdom and holiness and asking the Lord for his help. So what Paul does is he defends marriage. He says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he says, look, there's a good and right place for the expression of sexual desire. It's within a marriage between a man and a woman. And again, if you weren't here last week, I plead with you, go back and listen to the full message from last week. And God's, we tried to share as graciously and as truthfully as we could, God's design for marriage and sex. But Paul says, marriage, it's a good thing. Sex within it is a good thing. It is protective in some ways from sexual temptation. It's the good and right place for sexual enjoyment. So he says, don't do that. Don't, don't drive over here. He goes on, verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. I wanna say two things about that. One, let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. That sounds incredibly unromantic, right? It just does, right? I mean, if the apostle Paul, like he says that and you're like, oh, wow. And, and so I'll say this, from 20 to 23, I was single, right? And uh, I didn't really date anyone. And during that time, I, I looked over many, many, pretty much I think every passage the scriptures have as far as how do you approach dating and, and marriage. And one of the things I was shocked by was how differently the Bible sometimes talks about marriage than we do. And, and so let me say it this way. Um, does the Bible talk beautifully uh, about sex? Absolutely. If you ever read the Song of Solomon, right? I mean, it's it, like, it'll make you blush, right? It, it's, it's a celebration of that. Does it talk beautifully about marriage? Absolutely. The Apostle Paul does, Ephesians 5. It's a wonderful, he talks about, it pictures Christ and the church. It's this profound mystery. And at the same time, while marriage is celebrated in the scriptures, it's not idolized. And while the Bible acknowledges romance within marriage, it doesn't overly romanticize it. Does that make sense? And I think we would do well to pay attention to this, that the Bible doesn't set up sex and marriage and even romance as this is the end all be all. The reason for your existence is that you know, the sole purpose that God placed you on planet earth is to find your soulmate. And when you find that soulmate, all of your problems will disappear. That's not true. That's not true. And the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. What the Bible says is that 
Sex is a good thing. Sex is good, but it's not God. Marriage is good, but it's not God. And sometimes the way in which it talks about it, a little bit matter-of-factly, you're like, really? But I think part of the reason that catches us off guard is because of the way in which our culture approaches it, and that is we overly romanticize sex. We look to it, we look to our spouses to do things for us and to be things for us that they simply cannot be. We bring expectations into marriage that we're saying, man, I have all of these problems, but if I just find the right person, then that person will satisfy and fulfill my soul. And so we bring these expectations into marriage that no human being, no mere mortal could possibly fulfill those things for you. And it sets us up for failure from the very beginning. And that's where a good corrective for us is to look in the scriptures and to see the way Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the rest of the scriptures talk about marriage to say, hey, it's good, but it's not God. It's not a solution for all of your problems. Rather, God's got a good design for it, but again, not God. Now here, second thing, this is so crucial. There's something about what Paul says here that again, sounds a little cringeworthy almost, but it's really profound. So he says, the husband should give to his wife, the wife should give to her husband. The word give actually, actually, if literal translation is pay, like pay this to her and pay this to him, which sounds again sort of cringeworthy, but I don't want us to miss the profound nature of what the Apostle Paul is saying here, okay? Husbands, he says, give to your wife. Wife, he says, give to your husbands, not husbands demand from your wife. Not Wives, demand from your husband. It's a, when he talks about sex within marriage, he's talking about something that's self-giving and not self-taking. So he doesn't look at husbands and wives and says, this is something to weaponize. This is something to weaponize against each other. It's an attitude of self-giving, seeking the joy of the other person, not taking or demanding something from the other. Let's, take a, let's just take a moment, take a deep breath here. I thought last week was gonna be the tough one and then I got to this week and I was like, oh boy, right? And so let's take a deep breath. I know we're diving in deep, but this is so important, okay? Last week we said, hey, the biblical boundary for sex is within a marriage, a husband and a wife. But I think we have to take it a step further here and say, hey, there's a way that you can approach sex within a marriage that is still unhealthy, You say, well, we're doing it within marriage. Yep, but there's still a way in which God intends for it to be used inside of marriage. And if I were to define that, here's the design, right? Here's the intention. Even within marriage, here's the way God wants us to approach that with our spouse. God's design for sex within marriage. Humble, Christ-like, self-giving, not selfish, demanding, and self-gratifying. Humble, Christ-like, self-giving, not selfish, demanding, and self-gratifying. We were talking about this as a staff in preparation for this message and just asking some of our staff for feedback because we knew, like, hey, there's a lot of different perspectives on this. People are in a lot of different places. Some of us are in healthy marriages, and praise God for that. And some of us are really struggling right now. One of our ladies, our staff ladies, I thought said it so well. She said, look, we have to remember that the fruit of the Spirit should be present in every area of our lives, including this one. What's the fruit of the Spirit, right? From Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. And it got me reflecting on this. That if, let's say it this way, if peace and patience, gentleness and self-control disappear the moment we enter the bedroom and are replaced by selfishness and self-gratification, anger and impatience, that should be a red flag for us. Can I ask us just to do a little bit of soul searching here? I, really, the way I'd say that, can I ask you to let the word of God do a little bit of searching in your soul? And I don't say that like wagging my finger at anyone, right? This is, a, this is me looking at me, a fellow sinner saved only by the grace of God. As I read this this week, I, I mean, like I had to go, Morgan, I'm sorry. I think I apologized twice this week. Like as I read the word of God and I ask the question, what, what characterizes my attitude and my actions? Like, I'm sorry. I know that I fall short of this and praise God for Jesus because he saves us and he changes us. But can I ask you to do a little bit of soul searching and let the word of God sit on you for a moment and just say, I mean, what has characterized, if you're married, what has characterized your attitude and your actions towards your spouse in this area? Because Paul says that in verse three, and then he goes on in verse four, and he furthers the point. This is what he says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, here's what's fascinating. So I think many people in his culture and in his day would have thought he would have stopped after the first part of verse four. So Roman culture, the dad, the father, the husband had total authority over the family. There was little concept in the ancient world and still little concept in many cultures and societies today of the idea of equality between a husband and a wife and that both man and woman are made equally in the image of God. And so I think many would have expected Paul to stop there, but he doesn't. He goes on and says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And it's an important point all throughout the passage, two words that mark what Paul says here as he talks about sex within marriage, mutuality and equality. There's mutuality and equality in the sexual relationship. He does not say it's one dominating the other or domineering over the other, one demanding its self-giving, its selflessness, its humility, and its mutuality and equality. In fact, just note, go back and look over the verses. The entire thing is a parallel. It's just back and forth. He says, each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. Husbands, give to your wives. Wives, give to your husbands. Wives, your body belongs to him. Husbands, your body belongs to her. That's purposeful on Paul's part. He's just going back in exact parallels and saying, sex between a husband and wife should be characterized by giving, not taking, selflessness, not selfishness, kindness, not demanding, gentleness and patience and understanding, not anger and coldness when you don't get what you want. Here's my guess. Many of us right now feel thoroughly defeated. Like, oh Lord, that doesn't characterize me. That's, I fall miserably short of that standard. And if that's where you are today, and this is the beauty of the gospel, is there's one who didn't fall short of the standard, Jesus. 
and his life was lived in your place and his death on the cross was in your place and in mine and his resurrection from the grave ensures that what he did was enough, that we can be washed clean. And then what do the scriptures tell us? That when we trust Jesus with our life, the very spirit of God, we saw it last week in 1 Corinthians 6, that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. He can empower you and change you. So you bring that, all that insufficiency, Lord, this doesn't characterize my life. We bring it to him and we say, Father, forgive me. I need your help. Help me by the Spirit, as Romans 13 says, by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body that I might live. Behold, I'm a new creation. And it's no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. Lord, we can, we can live differently. Now he goes on in verse five. Let's look at verse five and a couple of comments on that. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, uh, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul says as a general statement, okay? This is where we get into some of the maybe difficulty. Paul says as a general statement, yes, husbands and wives should come together regularly. He says that's good. It guards us from sexual temptation. The frequency... Paul does not prescribe that. Well, how often should we do that? That's, that's between a husband and a wife. It's not prescriptive. I will say this, and I think Paul says this, there's danger for both spouses when that just gets shut off. If that's something that's shut off and it's, hey, that's gonna be long-term and we're drifting apart, he says there's danger for both spouses. So I wanna encourage you, if you're here today and that's where you are right now, one, here's what I would say, number one, there are probably, and this is both to husband and wife, there are probably multiple reasons for that happening. Sometimes it's deep, usually it is, complex, hard, communication has broken down. And if that's where you are today, you need help. And the first thing I would say is talk to each other. Talk to each other and let your talking to one another, husbands and wives, be characterized by honesty, by gentleness, by patience with one another, by understanding, and by a whole lot of listening. Start with talking to one another. Hey, clearly something's going on here. We feel we've drifted apart. Let's talk to one another. And if you are like, communication is broken down so much that I don't think we can, then reach out for help. Don't leave that in the darkness. Don't leave that in hiding. We have a wonderful staff here. We have counselors that are part of our church that would be happy to help. We have people we refer out to. You may need to seek counseling. You may need another couple to come alongside you. You may be in the context of your life group, but don't just let it sit. Reach out, talk to someone, and ask for help. And by the grace of God, it can change. But let me say this as well. While Paul affirms the goodness of sex and the, the goodness of regular, here's going to define it again, of regular self-giving sex between a husband and a wife. He doesn't say how often it needs to be, nor does he say, the answer always has to be yes when one of you wants to have sex. Because let's just be honest here for a moment, right? Um, my understanding is, I'm aware, that sometimes that's the way that has been interpreted, even within the church. Historically, and still today, there are teachings and sort of books floating around that seem to hyper-focus on this, like, don't deprive one another equals if one or the other wants to, it always, they always, the answer always has to be yes. That's not what Paul is saying, okay? 
that like, come on, if he's saying, hey, there might be a time where for mutually you say, hey, let's take some time to devote ourselves to prayer. And one of you is like, well, I will never have that mutual agreement. So there we go, right? We'll never take time. That's not fair. And I don't think Paul is saying, hey, the answer always has to be yes. The answer can be no. And as you talk with one another, or graciousness, patience, understanding, no, not tonight, okay? Can there be another time? Let's talk together. Let's work together. Let's love one another. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Let's be patient and understanding with each other. And I'm aware as well, and, and guys, I'm just going to speak to some of us for a second, to, the, to husbands. Again, I'm aware some of this teaching has been, I think, twisted and maybe hyper-focused on that um, particularly guys, and, and this is not true for every marriage, not true for every guy. Some of us husbands, you're leading by the Spirit, loving, being attentive, right, to your wife. And then some of us, maybe even unintentionally, what we've been taught is, because of this, right, don't deprive one another. The way it gets communicated is basically husbands have some sort of you know, enormous sexual need and sort of sexual animals, and then wives, your job is you always have to be there and never say no. Guys, that's not fair. That's not fair. And I'm aware, and we're hearing that some wives, what, what at least has been heard is, it's my job, I have to be there, and if something happens, then it's my fault. The best way I can say it is this way. Guys, if, if I go look at pornography, I can't blame Morgan. That's not her fault. You're not spouses. You're not responsible for the other's sexual sin. Okay? The point Paul is trying to make is, yes, if that area has been turned off entirely, something's wrong. That's like a check engine light. And please reach out for help. He says, yes, it's good to come together regularly. That's healthy for a marriage. And at the same time, we live in a broken world. We feel the effects of sin. In fact, that's the next question I want to ask. Like, why is this so difficult? Why, if we're inside the boundaries, why do husbands and wives still struggle with this? Why is, this, why is there frustration and tension? I'm going to come back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. The only marriage, if you ask in the scriptures, who had the crazy dynamic marriage that never had any troubles, never had any struggles? I can't think of any. <laughs> Except for one, and that would be Adam and Eve before Genesis 3. Adam and Eve before Genesis 3. And then what happens in Genesis 3? They turn away from the Lord. And something that God says to Eve it caught me this past week. As he pronounces the curse of sin, he looks at Eve and he says, your desire is going to be contrary to your husband, and husband, but your husband will rule over you. And I'm listening to that and I'm going, what does that even fully mean? That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like a uh, a good relationship. And, and actually in Genesis 4, when God talks to Cain about sin, he says, sin's desire is going to be contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the same language. So here, here's what I'm taking away. Um, what once was complementary and perfect has become competitive sometimes and oppositional. Can anyone attest to that? Sometimes it feels like you and your spouse are against one another rather than for one another. And that's the enemy's work. That's sin's work. That's why we feel the struggle. That's why happily ever after is really a myth. It takes work and humility and trying to love one another in a Christ-like way, and particularly the culture in which we live. And this is important. Many of us bring into marriage just a lot of brokenness, things that we've done in the past, 
things that have been done to us. And sometimes that stuff's hard to talk about. And it has damaging effects. And husbands and wives, can I just plead with you? Be understanding with one another. Ask each other regularly, how are you doing? How are we doing in this area? How are you doing personally? Do you need to share with me? Is there anything that happened? Are you doing okay? Don't. And if this area is, again, I'm going to say it again. If you've come to a place where you're like, we just can't even have the conversation anymore. We're going to take some time here at the end to pray and just have an extended time of prayer. And our next steps team is going to be lining the walls here. And if you're like, man, I know there's a problem. I don't know exactly what it is, and I don't know how to fix it. You know what? That's okay. Good for you. Maybe you and your spouse need to just say, good for you for just bringing it out into the open. And maybe you need to find someone as we pray, go to the Next Steps team and say, let's just have someone pray for us. And let's take a first step toward healing. It's okay to not be okay. And Jesus, though, he doesn't want us to stay that way. That's the next question. Can it get better? Why is this so difficult? Because Genesis 3 happened. Can it get better? Absolutely. And only through Christ, the sin-killing power of the Holy Spirit, and through community, through having brothers and sisters around us who can help us. In fact, um, it's interesting, the entire, par- the entire passage is a paradox, right? When you look at it and you're like, can this really be achievable, right? I mean, can we really love each other this way and have mutuality and equality within the relationship? And the answer is, on our own, no. It will inevitably lead to conflict and competition. Through the Spirit of God, yes. Jesus said that, did he not? With God, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With God and through Christ and through his community and by the sin-killing power of the Spirit, a husband and a wife can actually come to one another and say, hey, let's not insist on our own way, but let's seek to serve one another in selflessness. And when we fail, let's apologize to one another. Let's be convicted by the Spirit and let's approach each other in an attitude of humility. And finally, I would say this, put sex in its right place. Put sex in its right place. I said earlier, we live in a culture that tries to portray sex as if it's God, and it's not. Sex is good, but it's not God. Sex is a temporary thing. It's a temporary thing. It will pass away. And the joy of sex and the joy of sex within marriage is meant to be a glimpse that points us to something greater. A man and a woman coming together and becoming one flesh and the joy of that, it's meant to point us towards a greater unity, the unity between Jesus and his church. Morgan and I were sitting around uh, the table this week and as we were talking about this, I just seemed like it was from the Lord. I looked at her and I said, sweetheart, I think if we make it to 80, if the Lord by his grace lets us live to 80 and we look back over 50 some years of marriage, and we're holding hands at the table. I said, I, I just don't think at 80 years old, we're going to look back over the 50 years of marriage and say, wow, what a sex life. <laughs> Those of you who are 80, you can correct me later, right? If you find me. In... <laughs> you know what I hope? I hope that we're looking back over the decades and we say, wow, look at the faithfulness of God over the long haul. Look at God's grace over our family. 
by his grace, look at what he's done in our kids and in our grandchildren. Look at what he's done through his church. And I think we'll not only be looking back, but God willing, we'll be looking ahead and saying, heaven's right around the corner. And the day is coming soon where all this joy and the the unity that we've experienced in marriage, it's been pointing to that, the unity that we have with him to the day when we see him face to face. So yes, let's work hard. Let's love one another well. Let's put sex in its right place. And yes, enjoy it within the confines of marriage as we selflessly serve one another and not insist on our own way, but through Christ, approach one another in humility, patience, and gentleness. But let's not worship this thing. It's not God. There is one God and it is him alone. And this is merely a glimpse of the greater joy of being with him forever. Let's pray together. As I said, as we pray, we're going to just play some music here. We're going to have a few minutes just in prayer. And if you're here and you or you and your spouse, it might be from what we talked about last week. It might be what we talked about this week. If you just need to talk to someone and ask them to pray for you, do that during this time. Nobody's going to look around at you. We're all going to be praying. Find a Next Steps team member. They're here in the auditorium. They're in the back. A staff member. Just go find someone and say, hey, will you pray for me? Take a first step today. But I want to give you time right now just to pray. If you want to grab your spouse's hand and pray together, do that. But speak to the Lord. Sit under his word and let his spirit lead you as you pray. Father, we love you. God, as we pray, there are people meeting you and speaking to you right now from all different places. Some of us in seasons of singleness. God, some of us have come out of relationships, broken marriages. God, some of us married and in a healthy place. Praise God. Lord, some of us married and 
in a place or a season of great difficulty and brokenness. Father, will you meet us where we are? Lord, for those of us who need to start a conversation today, will you move in our hearts to do it, not to wait, but to submit ourselves to your word, to follow the leading of your spirit. God, for all of us, will you help us to take on an attitude of Christ-likeness? We're your children. We're new creations. God, forgive us for the times when we fall back into patterns of selfishness, demanding our own way. Father, will you bring healing? to some of the marriages in the room, to some of the families in the room. You're a God who takes broken things and you put them back together and you redeem and you heal and you forgive. And we ask you to do that in our midst. And Lord, I know some of these things are uncomfortable to talk about but your word addresses it and we experience it, God. So will you make this place a safe place for people to share in our life groups? A place, Father, where relationships are deep, where understanding is great and your spirit leads us. Lord, we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.